as we read the Bible today. We're still in 1 Corinthians, uh, moving out of the beginning of chapter 3. So please pull your Bibles out. Paul, the apostle, as Pastor Stephen has been leading us through, is urging the Corinthian church away from disunity and towards unity, away from quarreling, bickering, and boasting, and towards like-mindedness and peace with one another. So let's continue reading together. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is still jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. And by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think that you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. This is the word of the Lord. So just off the bat, the message for the day is in general this. I uh, think our imaginations are stifled. We are no longer uh, convinced of what is possible, or what we believe is possible has become limited And so hopefully, we will learn to strengthen our imagination uh, by simple reading of the Bible. Uh, But first, did anything catch your imagination as we read? Or in listening, did you find anything that required your imagination in that uh, medium-length passage? How is Paul engaging our imagination? Well, in a simple way, Paul's metaphors use and require a great deal of imagination. So let's think about some of the ones he uses. First, 
he equates his hearers to infants. He says he gives them milk and not solid food. Uh, now, I'm looking at all of you out here, and actually, are there any infants in this room? I can't see right now. There's probably a couple, right? There's not a lot. Uh, but it does require a bit of imagination to see the rest of you in diapers, uh, which is essentially what Paul is saying. And it does calm my nerves to put the work forth and to see you all in diapers. Uh, he goes on to compare his people also, not only to infants, um, which is us as well, to a field planted and watered, and then to a building built and tested by fire. Not only are we a building, but we together are a temple, a specific building for God's spirit. So this is one way in which Paul is engaging the imaginations of his listeners, who today are us. Through metaphor and simile, these words engage our imaginations to reveal true things to us and about us. You're not a field, you're a person, but you are God's field. You're not a building, you are a person, but you are God's building. And this requires our imagination. Imagination is, uh, just to clarify, when we use our mind's eye, when we use our heart to see something that we can't see with our own senses, it doesn't mean that thing is not true, but it does mean it requires imagination to conceive of in the moment. And this is not the only way imagination is at play, these metaphors in this. And in fact, I don't think it's the most important way. It is one way, the metaphors, that help build upon the other more important way. And I want you to hold on to that imagination for a moment and consider with me the whole purpose of this chapter, of this passage. At the beginning, Paul makes an accusation against this congregation in Corinth. He says, You are worldly, mere infants, and you are saying, I follow Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas, and on and on and so forth. And after making his accusation and then making his argument, how does he conclude? He says, No, you do not belong to Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, nor are you worldly. Because the whole world belongs to you. You have been marked by the Spirit. You belong to Christ. You belong to God. And this here is the main point. You belong to Jesus Christ. You do not belong to anyone else. You don't belong to Pastor Stephen. You don't belong to any former pastors or teachers that you've had. You certainly don't belong to me. You don't belong to the president. You don't belong to your boss at work. You don't even belong to your own parents at the end of the day. You belong to God and to God alone. And this is Paul's first and main point. And what a great point it is. It's about as important of a point as there could be for us to base our lives upon. Our own Heidelberg Catechism, which is what we use to teach one another and to train one another for baptism, uh, makes this its very first point. How many of you know Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one? A few of us in here, not all of us. The first question is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And it answers that question in what way? Stephen? In death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You got louder partway through. That I am not my own, but that I belong, body and soul and life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You belong to Jesus Christ, and that is a great point. And that is the main point of this passage that Paul is giving to us. So say it with me. I belong to Christ. I belong to Christ. We belong to Jesus Christ. We belong to Jesus Christ. This is good news. So that's Paul's main point, which leaves us with a question. What's this sermon about again? Um, Well, I think that's a point that he makes that in part diagnoses a problem. And the problem is this. We have a very difficult time 
imagining what it might actually look like to belong to Jesus. We have a difficult time imagining it. It gets confused with so many other things, much more normal things. And because of that, we settle for less than what that might possibly mean. And here's a little bit of evidence for my case, why I think it's true. One, that it's difficult for us, and one, that what it means to belong to Jesus might mean more than we've allowed it to mean for us. Look at me with verse 4 of our chapter, if you still have your Bibles open. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Or in other words, in asking these questions, or in making these statements, are you not acting like mere human beings? And think about that question for a second. What does that mean? Are you not mere human beings? What are the ramifications of this? If Paul's asking it, it's because his expectation of the Christian life, of those who've been transformed by the Spirit of God, is that that transformation somehow makes them, somehow makes us into something beyond simply human. Isn't that weird? That is weird. I don't think he would say that we are no longer human at all. It's quite obvious that we are still human beings. But we are certainly something more. It's an extreme conversion to become a Christian, to become one who belongs to Christ. It is as drastic, say, as the difference between an infant and an adult. It is as drastic, say, as between a seed in a whole field ripe for harvest. There's correlation, but the seed does not look like a fruit or a flower or a tree. The seed has to go in the ground and die and sprout to become that flower just like we in baptism. It's as drastic a difference as a single brick in a large, beautiful temple fit for hosting God. So what does it mean to belong to Christ? And do you ever think about it in this way, that you are somehow more than merely human? Do you ask yourself if you're ever acting like a mere human? I'm happy to admit that this stretches my own imagination, first of all. It's very challenging for me to consider My imagination is small. And I think this was true of those in Corinth as well. And I think uh, this is part of the reason why they were so compelled to claim human leaders for themselves. I'm sure, I guess I can't be entirely sure, but I'm pretty confident that each one of the people Paul is addressing, who says, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, would also say they follow Christ. They would take the moniker of Christ upon themselves as well. But by having a human leader as the primary, it puts a buffer against the oddity of all this. It softens the demand. And think of how strange Jesus Christ actually is. Here's a person who we claim was born of a virgin, right? Here's a person who we claim cast out demons and healed the sick and was God, but was also a man. And not only that, but he lived with the poor. And not only that, but he died. And then he raised from the dead. And then he ascended into heaven. And not only that, but even in heaven, he continues to communicate to us, to have a relationship with us through a thing called the Holy Spirit. This is a very strange thing. It's odd. To put a human leader makes a lot of sense because it removes some of the oddity. It removes some of the demand. And even more, as Pastor Stephen has pointed out very well in past weeks, it likens this community at Corinth to those around them. Right? Stephen has talked to us about the sophists and the culture of the sophists and the wise people and the association that you would have with a wise person enough that you would even go to war (laughs) 
or violence uh, with somebody who took upon a different philosophy. They took the value systems of the world around them, sophism, wisdom, association with smart people, right? This vision of success that was consistent with the world, and they melded gospel language onto an imagination that already existed. In other words, their imaginations for what the gospel could mean were limited. So they limited the transformative power of the gospel to what they already knew. Let me try and repeat that. Their imagination of what the gospel could mean was limited. They couldn't see that it could mean something more than being like the people around them. So they limited the transformative power of the gospel to the world they already knew. Does that ring true for you as well? Has your imagination of the transformative power of God in your own life been limited to the expectations that the world has given around you? This doesn't have to mean that the world has taken away everything or that the world has claimed your Christianity away from you or that you will not survive the day that is to come. Like Paul says, You may build with straw and everything that you've built will be destroyed, but you will survive as one who escapes through the fire, right? But have you limited what it could be? You still belong to Christ. Those in Corinth belonged to Christ, but they limited themselves to quarreling, to bickering, to arguing over human leaders because that was the world they knew. That was how they knew to live with one another. That was the value structure they had already established. And I know I see this happen in the world today. And here's one way maybe you've seen it. If you think honestly, how closely connected is your vision of the kingdom of heaven with white picket fenced houses and suburban neighborhoods? Is it close? Maybe that's a limitation. How closely do we hold in our mind's eye wealth, health, comfort, and equate it with the kingdom of heaven? And now these are all good things, but are we again limiting the vision that's been given to us? And is it possible that we also reduce the moral vision of Christ to this rendition of prosperity? Or in other words, have you ever been tempted to begin merging your sense of success, I'm doing pretty well, my family's fairly healthy, my fridge is full, my bills are paid, with your sense of righteousness? I know I have, and I know I've seen it in others, but this isn't it. This isn't the vision of Christianity that Jesus gives us, or at least the limits of it. This isn't the limit of the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says, ask and it will be given, did he just have cars in mind or bill payments that needed to be made? Or did he have something else, something even more? The academic world that I've been a part of and that Stephen just re-entered into of his own joy uh, struggles with this temptation in a slightly different way. Wealth is obviously always a temptation. uh, But they're a little more like those in Corinth. In the academic world of today, knowledge... And understanding are the highest valued things. So Christianity then, this is true in seminaries and schools and uh, even our own lives as we try and be like these places, uh, becomes a pursuit, an exercise in knowledge and in understanding. How often have you seen or heard someone take the words of Christ and try to argue their way around them so they don't actually have to follow them? Have you done that yourselves? Well, this says this, but it actually means this if you look more closely at it or if you interpret it a few ways or if you do some gymnastics in your mind, then you don't actually have to follow it. Plus, I'm smarter than you, so I'm better than you, right? 
This is, the, uh, this is also the same impulse uh, that equates sharing of links or likes in social media with actual compassion and activism in the world. But when Jesus tells his disciples to declare the coming kingdom, to cast out demons, and to heal the sick, was he just talking about understanding something differently? Or was he talking about a world that was being transformed at a foundational level? Neither of these cut it. Prosperity, education, understanding. We belong to Christ. And belonging to Christ means something vastly more than that. It means somehow we are more than mere humans. And it means our imaginations need to be expanded beyond what the world has shown us so far. What the world has shown that it's possible for you to be. What the world has shown uh, that it's possible for you to be like. So how do we expand our imaginations? Where do we go? What do we do? And in what way should our imaginations be expanded? The prosperous one, the prosperous world would send us to the top or maybe to those who hold power and tradition and they would say, seek these things out. The academic one might want us to read more, look for more complex, subversive answers maybe. And neither of these are the way. We need to go low. We need to go simple. When it comes to the Christian life, Sometimes it's the simplest things that are the hardest to imagine. And it's also the simplest things that are the foundation we stand upon. How hard is it sometimes to imagine or to believe that Jesus really lived? Sometimes doubt creeps in. That he really died for my sins. That he rose from the grave. Sometimes it's hard to imagine that God has any idea who I am. Sure, he's doing things in the world globally, historically, but he doesn't really know me. That he would care for me? Can I imagine that? It's hard to imagine that God loves me. It's hard to imagine that I belong to Christ. And sometimes it's hard to imagine that that, belonging to Christ, is enough. How hard is it sometimes to simply take God at his word, to listen and say, yes, I believe, and to be transformed? At a time when Satan, when the whole world, wants you to stay the same, instead of being transformed. You may have noticed by now that another word we can use in the place of imagination is faith. It took imagination and it took faith to commit to this building project we are undertaking. It takes imagination and faith to see the kingdom of God breaking into this world and to value it more than this world. It takes imagination and faith to see how you could be a part of that breaking in, that you too could belong to Christ who overcomes the world and to whom the whole world belongs. I really believe that we need our imagination strengthened. I really believe that we need our faith strengthened. The building that we're going to be building through those windows in the back is going to be great. And it will be very important to the life of this community and the community around us. But the true building of God is us. It is the people of God. You are the building that really matters, each one of you individually and together. And our prayer together is that we would be a strong and Christ-like building fit for hosting the Spirit of God. The success of this project doesn't rest on the construction workers laying bricks upon one another, but on each one of you, building on the work of Christ in your own hearts, in your own families, in your own house, and on your own street. You're not mere humans, but you belong to Christ, and the world is yours. So what do we do? If we need our imagination strengthened and shaped to the mind of Christ, if we need our faith bolstered, 
And if we want to know what our lives can really become as we walk the way of Christ, where do we begin? The first things we do are the simple things. We read the Bible and we pray. We don't read the Bible or pray to gain wealth. We don't read it thinking we need to have some great education to understand it. 1 Corinthians has been clear with us on this. God confounded the wise with his foolish things, right? It's not a matter of learning. It's a matter of listening and believing and of having our hearts opened. We read the Bible and we pray. And so we're going to do this briefly right now. We're going to practice this together, a simple reading of the Bible. And we're going to do so with the expectation that God knows what he's talking about that our imaginations can be shaped by his words and not by the expectations the world has given us. Even if that expectation has been the one we've held our whole lives, even if our whole lives we've called ourselves Christians. So the lectionary gospel reading puts us today in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to be reading some of this aloud. And if you'd like, you may read along with me from that chapter, starting in chapter 5. And afterwards, we're going to take an offering, and after that, we're going to pray. You may have heard it said that the Sermon on the Mount is an unachievable goal that Jesus gives to expose our sins, right? These are very difficult. Nobody can live up to them. It's just a way of showing that you're sinful. That may be true, but we're going to listen to the words of Jesus today as if he meant for us to both hear and follow them. As if it is true that we belong to Christ and that all things are possible through him who strengthens us. We're going to listen to the words of Jesus as if they are meant to shape our imagination of what it means to be human, of what it means to be more than a mere human, to be a Christian, to be shaped for the coming days, to be a building that we're being built towards. These are the words of Jesus himself to you, his disciples. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar or at the offering plate, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. And again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. We're going to jump ahead to verse 19. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. (coughs) For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. But ask, and it will be given to you. Seek. And you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. 
away from me, evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. These are the words of our Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word, that it is good food, that in it we find life that we could know nowhere else. I pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit to have unity with you, with one another, that you would continue uh, in ways that we cannot even see now to engage our imaginations of what it might mean to follow you. And we pray that the house that we built, the house that we are building, will be built on the rock. And we pray that the foundation that we have as the people who are your building would also be on that rock, that everything that we build together would sustain the fires of the day to come. We love you today. We worship you.